It's March 11th, 2010. Welcome to Neuroscientist Talk Shop, UTSA's neurobiology podcast. Our guest today is David Popel. He is a professor at NYU. He's a neuroscientist and linguist who asks some fundamental questions about how we get from acoustic signals to linguistic representations to language production within the anatomical framework of the brain. Um, hi, da- hi, David. Hi. Thanks for having me. <laughs> Before I forget, I should also plug his incredibly fun and erudite blog, uh, Talking Brains, which he runs with frequent collaborator and awesomely opinionated Greg Hickok of UC Irvine. Is that right? UC That's Irvine. right. He's Irvine. Great. So around the room, we have Charlie Wilson. Hi. We have Nicole Witta. Hello. And Todd Troyer. Hello. And me, I'm your host, Selma Karashi. So, um, David, you've talked about, uh, in various writings, the parts list, in quotes, that linguists use to frame their inquiries about language and how these fundamentally don't map onto the parts list that neurobiologists use to talk about the brain. Um, this is what you've called, I guess, the granularity mismatch problem. Can you just talk about that mismatch and what approaches you feel are needed to bring the two cultures more into register? Yeah, okay, so thanks for starting with an impossibly difficult question. <laughs> I appreciate the casual approach. You can ignore <laughs> it. You make up your own question. That's the, fine. Um, so, yeah, this is, this is indeed something that I've worried about and I worry about all the time, which is if we believe, and I think we do, that the neurobiological mechanisms form the basis for speech comprehension, speech production, and everything else for that matter, then... It has to be a goal to bring the domains of research into some kind of alignment. And the problem is that our intuitive stance is what might one characterizes as uh, naively reductionist. That is to say, we think that neurobiological mechanisms are foundational, and therefore what we see in psychology or behavior should reduce in some straightforward way to what we know about neuroscience, let's say action potentials or NMDA receptors or oscillations. But it's not at all clear that that's the way to go. And so the way I framed the problem in some work with my colleague Dave Embick from University of Pennsylvania is to try to figure out what the alignment would actually look like. And so what we say is, let's um, suppose we send a um, questionnaire to every member of the Linguistic Society of America and the British Linguistic Society and the German Linguistic Society and so on, and we ask them to make basically a parts list or you know a list of what you consider the primitives. And people will come up with a list, let's say the notion of a syllable or a phoneme or a noun phrase or something like that. And we can do the same exercise with neuroscientists, and the list of putative primitives will be obviously very different dendritic spine, or something like that. Um, now, the, the if we're on the right track at all in these two domains of research, they must align and there must be some linking hypotheses. And what's missing is that these things happen completely independently with no explicit linking hypotheses. So linguists and psycholinguists proceed on one side of the aisle, as it were, in Washington speak, and neurobiologists who work on perception and language processing work with a very different kind of conceptual inventory, and these things are just not connected. And what we call the granularity mismatch problem is they work at things at very different levels of um, detail that are not actually reducible in the same way. So the strategy of saying, oh, you know, words just reduced to some action of a group of cells is silly. It's in fact, we have the vaguest idea about how to do any of this. So our question is, how do you do it? And our, we don't have an answer for this, but our intuition as a research program is that 
some form of computation has to lie at the middle. So if you want to characterize in terms of cast uh, people, we have on the, let's say, you want to find linking hypotheses between a sort of Chomskyan research program on the one side and a Candelian research program on the other, who is in the middle? Who is providing the kind of um, uh, architecture of the problem and, and computational structure of the problem such that you can express what's you know, demonstrable and very convincing in language research and, and biological research? So we need a kind of uh, MAR approach to linking uh, computational level of description and language to the neurobiological implementation, and we don't have anyone like that. We need you, know, you guys, students, postdocs, smart, creative new people. So that's the nature of the problem. So isn't that just like, I mean, in some ways it may just be uh, uh, an extreme or heightened version of of most of, or a big bunches of, uh, say, cognitive psychology, of uh, traditional things about concepts and schemas and all these kinds of things that we really don't know what kind of representation we're talking about and people go after them, decisions, and there's these two different languages and they go after things and do different experiments and, and there's there's this big gap of mm-hmm. of some idea of representation. No, that's exactly right. I mean, this is not... A, so this is a special case of, a, I think, a very generic problem in linking, let's say, the sciences of the mind to, to neurobiology. And I think as we all have some training in neuroscience, we believe that that really has to be uh, in the end, some the infrastructure for it. But and surely we don't believe that that's the right language to say capture concepts. The theory of concepts or the cognitive psychology of concepts is a richly articulated field with lots of stuff. We wouldn't just say, oh, this should really reduce naturally to action potentials. That would be just completely ad hoc and bizarre. So finding the, le- I mean, Coslin has worked on this problem a lot, and, the, and he has written a series of kind of interesting and provocative papers about what the levels of representation or linking hypotheses could be like. All we're doing is sort of thematizing the problem in the context of language and saying, you know, language is one of the few areas of psychological inquiry where we have very detailed knowledge at different levels of, of representation and a lot of theories and competing theories and different different kinds of models, and so it's a good way to. Um, to begin to spell out in very explicit terms where some of the challenges lie. I think the other one is presumably vision. So we know very detailed um, aspects of vision. They they might also link in interesting ways. This is like the object recognition problem in vision, in a sense. It is an auditory object recognition problem. Isn't it? I think it's right, yeah. So, so, you know, to make a more specific case, for instance, word recognition is very much like object recognition. And it has some of the annoying and intractable characteristics, such as, say, the invariance problem. So one of the problems in object recognition is I can recognize them under different illumination conditions. I can recognize Todd, you know, at a weird angle or, uh, you know, hungover. And uh, so I must have some internally represented invariant representation. Uh, and that's exactly the same problem that people like, say, Shimon Ullman have been uh, grappling with in visual object recognition and that we struggle with in, in uh, spoken word recognition. So it's, yes, it is. So the, the nature of the problem is the same, which both helps and hurts. I mean, it helps because it means there's a literature out there you can connect to and you can maybe you know, draw some tricks from and say, wow, they've solved some really cool things about object representation. Um, but it also is a bit... Uh, it can be misleading and because they're not exactly the same thing. I mean, the nature of visual representation of an object is probably not the same as the 
nature of representation, for instance, of the lexical items in your head. It's so in what way? Well, that sounds like an interesting thing to well, say. Well, I mean, uh, well, why should they be the same? So let's say, I mean, for the sake of argument, let's say that we we agree on a format of representation in the brain. Let's say it's Microsoft Brain as the operating system, or MATLAB. Right, so that is going to be the <laughs> set, set the, the appropriate tone for Charlie. Yeah. <laughs> um, so we, so there's a, some kind of um, language or representational structure which we can use. Um, would w- that would be already a very happy accident, maybe? But then the kind of information that's connected to, for instance, knowing a word, is a little bit different. For instance, you have specifications for how to produce it, right? So it has. I talked about this a little bit in the lecture today. You know, one of the things that you have attached to your knowledge of words is a very detailed step-by-step spelling out of all the articulatory information that goes with, with saying something. And that's pretty detailed stuff. Uh, that's not something that you have with a visual object necessarily. You might have uh, pointers to various things, but it's not about how to actually output an object. I think there's a for instance. Uh, One of the things about... Visual object recognition, which is not my field, so I may say something wrong, but one of the things that seems more complicated than is normally acknowledged is the fact that we have to discover objects on the basis of what we can do with them. So we know that the table is not a part of the floor, partly because we've moved the table relative to the floor and we know they're separate. And if we hadn't ever done that, we might not recognize the difference between table and the floor. There's a kind of... Um, element of usefulness that goes into the definition of objects. And it's, uh, it's, it's true that we don't necessarily create the object in order to understand what it is. But there is something about, there is a motor component to object recognition at some point during learning at least, and even, even later. I mean, I don't even know where to begin to disagree. <laughs> so, no, I, I actually, I think you're very much onto something there, although I think it's, um, there's lots of different questions buried in there. One, the developmental issue is, do you actually need, let's say, the affordances of objects to understand the nature of objects? I think that's very controversial. And it's also an area that I don't work on, but my you know, friends from the developmental cognitive science literature provide lots of, let's, let's say we look at the work of Liz Spelke, Bayard, Jean, Susan Carey, and so on, seem to provide lots of evidence that even very, very young kids bring sophisticated notions of objecthood to tasks uh, well prior to a time where they have any motor experience with those things. So I think there's a there's a tension there in the literature that I think is unresolved. So I think there the might notion be some of innate inform- ideas about objects that get elaborated into our adult it might, Right, that's right. I mean, so there might be some, some at least pre-configured structure about what are properties of objects that are foundational properties of objects. And so I think the idea of needing affordances to learn about what that is is possibly a little different because in the case of words, you really do have a very... I mean, that's one of the fascinating things about it, right? You you have to have an internal representation <clears throat> that has a direct mapping to its acoustic structure, its acoustic realization, and its motoric realization. And that's very, maybe not unique, but a very interesting and maybe cool constraint that can help us solve this problem. You can say, look, at the very least, I have to have a bunch of pointers that say, uh, 
has to do with ellipse or something like that. Um, in addition, so where there's probably some similarities is perhaps in the uh, conceptual semantic or lexical semantic interpretation of these things. So you know a lot of the meaning of objects, say visual and visual object recognition, and the meaning of words, and how that's cashed out. One could imagine to be quite similar. So one way to think about this would be to find potential overlaps and then see uh, how far that gets you, and then see where there are distinctions between the representation of words and objects. I completely agree with the question and the research strategy, because I, by and large, my strategy has been to steal from other areas that know more than we do. <laughs> so I think in vision research, you know, lots of cool stuff is known, and we've tried to adopt it and adapt it and try to figure out how we can learn from it. But I think so sometimes there are disanalogies. The, to, yeah. to pursue the disanalogy a little yeah. bit, there was at least at one time, maybe there's still are people who think that, that that language recognition somehow is the same thing as the same mechanism as language articulation and mm -hmm. they measured sub uh, sub vocalizations mm -hmm. and that sort of stuff during what's the status of that view or that sort of motor mm -hmm. view of recognition yeah that's an extremely interesting and lively debate if you really want to know a lot about it you should you know Come to the blog that Greg Hickok and I have been uh, running, Talking Brains. There's been an exceptionally large amount of uh, discussion and commentary so, on this issue. So tell us about so the prevailing, the motor and the auditory so the, theories. The, are, so the, one of the most interesting theories in all of psychology, I think, was the motor theory of speech perception, which was originally um, developed by Al Lieberman and his colleagues, Haskins Labs. And the... It became you know, very interesting and sophisticated quickly. The original idea, or the, the, let's say the, the theory which still sort of prevails, uh, called the revised motor theory of speech perception, um, suggests that what you do as a listener is you um, recover the intended articulatory gestures of the speaker. So I hear something, and what I do in using my drawing on my motor system is to recreate what you intended to say. And that's a pretty cool idea, right? So the motor system plays a causal role in this. Now, I think that's a fascinating theory. Um, it has lots of problems. For instance, uh, that in fact, that it doesn't work at many levels. Still, it's such a great idea. Now, in the last few years, it, it's... This what doesn't it work at? Well, it doesn't work because, for instance, if you have a lesion in the motor area, you have no problems with perception. So at the most basic level... This theory, as as nice as it is as a cognitive psychological theory, it has no legs. So this is the one, this is the mirror neuron. Well, this idea. is beyond the mirror. So this is actually an older. The, the, so the problem is that lesions which compromise the motor system do not obliterate perceptual analysis of speech, and that's pretty much since that's the core prediction. The core prediction doesn't hold. And that being said, I'm very deeply attracted to this theory because it has a kind of aesthetic beauty which appeals to me. I mean, it's very elegant. But the unholy alliance with mirror neurons has pretty much now killed it because it's become silified. But, you know, there's, I, I'm not sure that experiment is really definitive because the, uh, Todd was about to say the same thing, I think. Because what, what the theory says is that the forward and, and inverse model generating part of the motor system is essential. It doesn't really require that the actual motor control right so this is so now we're getting okay so that now now we're in this sort of contemporary so now that's what we're trying to uh, that's in fact what we're trying to revise so one of the mis um misunderstandings or sort of misleading 
areas in these discussions has been that there's an identification with um, that the motor areas responsible for the generation of the, say, final common pathway output has to be what's at stake. And maybe that's uh, an unnecessarily stringent way to interpret this. Says maybe we should be looking at what are the parts that actually generate internal forward models. So it has, doesn't have to be that aspect of the motor system. And if we could rescue that, that would be really great. And that would, you know, per, uh, we could sort of resuscitate those parts of motor theory thinking that really have uh, make successful empirical predictions in our school. So I, I'm very attracted, and a lot of what I've been doing is pointing to potential roles of these things. So, for instance, I to, uh, briefly described an experiment today that's in terms of the relevant timescales that are involved. Both the you know, mouth and tongue area and the auditory cortex are aligned in terms of their sort of temporal units. That suggests that there actually should be you know, a very tight linkage between motor areas and perceptual areas. Nevertheless, I'm, you know, I have to eat my own king. You know, I'm arguing against that that's the right thing to do. So I think it's maybe we're not sufficiently granular in figuring out which part of the motor system could actually underline. But what you have to show, I mean, you know, and this is not an issue of one experiment, right? this is sort of a cumulative research program, is that retrieving information about the generation of speech is causally necessary for, the, for its perception. And that has never been shown. What's now being shown a lot in some very interesting studies from England, some from Italy, is that um, stimulation of certain parts of the motor system compromises perceptual analysis in some ways, can modify it. But what's never been shown in any compelling way is that you just don't have the percept, the percept anymore. And so the core, that's really the core claim. And a person who has actually done some very, who, uh, and some nice analyses of this is Andrew Lotto at the University of Arizona, who has actually given some very nice summary arguments of what's, in which way the core claims of the motor theory and that standard articulation are wrong. That being said, I would be totally in favor of resuscitating it in a slightly more, uh, you know, if we can refine it and link it to parts of the motor system that are not as, let's say, uh, well, not so close to the periphery, perhaps, then it would be very good. The original claim was literally that you'd see your tongue activated when you see you know, that kind of stuff. And that's just, that's just empirically false. I mean, just because you still see correlations doesn't mean it's uh, causally helpful. I think that's one, I mean, this is really one conceptual fundamental problem that I think when we brought up mirror neurons and talked about how much got dumped in them, um, and dividing between sensory and motor, I mean, we talk about those things like we know what we're talking about, and then... Mirror neurons are kind of the first thing that people thought they were both. There was something, so everybody gets dumped on them because it's a way of thinking about something that's sensory and motor. It's some conceptual framework for talking about things both ways. Maybe they're the same or some mixture. And then everything that, anything that's kind of a mixture in sensory and motor gets talked about in the kind of, not, not anything, but it's a mirror neuron kind of way gets dumped on. And so this, this thing about dividing sensory and motor in some task, like language or speech perception or something like that is a very difficult thing. And it's not, I would be surprised if this is going to be a bright line and a lot of sensory stuff doesn't get leak into the motor representations and the motor stuff leak in. And you, you get this kind of continuum of broadness and then the way it develops and it co-develops. And then, so if you take out one end, it doesn't mean it's not motor, but it's not going to be only motor. And 
it, it just gets very complicated. You have you don't we like to make a bright line about whether it's sensory or motor because at the end we either have to produce it or we have to it comes in. I think that that's why then the internal forward model idea is so incredibly attractive to people who are studying motor control at this point because that is a proposal about how sensory and motor meet and how they do something together and what their connection is and. I would submit that maybe an approach to this granularity issue would be to really seriously hunt for... I mean, this is something that neurophysiologists would get on board with. They wouldn't have any hesitation about it, and there are people doing it. Try to find those, the mechanisms of creating a forward model of any mode act of any kind, you know, uh, anywhere. Because um, those things are... Uh, are now part of thinking about every kind of motor activity there is, and some sensory activity, obviously, and uh, and there, um, you know, they're, they're, it isn't really controversial whether something like that happens. The issue is, how in the world can mm-hmm. the brain do that? Yeah, Where I mean, I completely, I, I completely agree. And what would be really nice is, I'm very much in favor of thinking in terms of internal forward models this way, and if written a bunch of papers recently about this very issue, how to apply that to, to recognition. And um, the it's and it's an old idea, incidentally, right? So the one of the most con- at the same time as the motor theory started in the late fifties, mid and late fifties, there was a very different strand of research um, on also speech recognition, an idea that became that was essentially completely ignored, which is now called analysis by synthesis. It was actually called analysis by synthesis then. In a series of short reports in the late 1950s, mostly by Ken Stevens and Morris Halley at MIT. And they actually have a real you know, engineering design using this analysis by synthesis idea, using an in, the internal forward model idea at its very core, that you have to Make, use predictive coding and synthesize possible targets in the context of analyzing inputs. And, and it was linked to, you know, having abstract knowledge of what you're trying to do, whether it's you know, in reaching or in speech perception. But somehow that idea, which has now been resuscitated, by the way, even in vision, there are now review articles on visual object recognition called analysis by synthesis and visual object recognition, even though it's been ignored in its, in its original domain. But there, um, that idea of analysis by synthesis was um, didn't get any traction, perhaps because at the same time, but on the one hand, the motor theory was sort of intuitively more appealing and less engineering, perhaps, and statistical approaches became very overpowering. So, for instance, why is it that the last forty years all automatic speech recognition systems are based on human mark uh, on hidden Markov models, and so? straightforwardly statistical models sort of took the day and captured the imagination and lots of grants were funded, graduate students trained. But this this little idea that was in the background was always there and was never really developed by, by any group. And until the last 10 years, perhaps, when it became clear that it links in interesting ways to the motor theory and it links in interesting ways to the notion of internal forward models as they've become formulated in motor control and perception. So I think there's now a beginning sense of using internal forward models in this way, but the, the challenge is still to uncouple the straightforward, how we at least used to think of motor system, from internal forward model. 
because the internal forward model part can be driven by completely uh, by, by structures in the brain that are not necessarily implicated in motor control at all, right? It's simply an aspect of predicting what's going to happen, comparing it to some input. And so uh, it would be nice to be able to discuss those two separately somehow, the motor control part and the internal forward model parts. And we have nice biological examples, let's say in the eye movement control system. So really, you know, elegant work by by Wirtz and Mark Sommer and things like that and how, and how it works really at the circuit level for eye movements and really beautiful work on arm movement control by people like Daniel Wolpert and Zubin Garamani. And so I think we should, again, steal those ideas or adapt them in a way that sharpens our thinking about, the about these aspects of uh, perception. So I'm, I'm super in favor of that, if you can't tell yet. <laughs> so how does the, this notion of the, the four hertz, the theta band... Um, come into play in that, in, in linking the motor sensory system. We're going to have to introduce that a little bit, about the, the ideas about the, the Right, so, okay, if good. Um, the, there's no, unfortunately, no quick answer for that, so here's a long and slow answer. <laughs> the, so the intuition that I've been pursuing for a while is that, uh, again, an old trick from engineering, namely, uh, processing things on multiple scales, in this case multiple time scales, um, is a useful little engineering trick to solve certain problems for perceptual analysis. And in this case, the kind of roughly time scales that we've been pursuing are a kind of lower frequency one, and say in the what's typically called the you know delta and theta bands electrophysiologically, maybe it's you know somewhere below ten hertz. And um, much higher frequency events, roughly in what's now the lower gamma band. So let's say 50 or 30 to 50 or something like that. And the intuition here is that you, as information comes in, you fractionate it into these two kind of, it gets passed through these two kind of temporal filters. So you get representations of a very different temporal granularity that permit you to extract different sorts of information. And uh, that means that you have to, what this gives you concretely is chunks of information that are commensurate with the kind of things you're looking for, let's say, in your memory. Right? You say, yeah, I need, out of this big, continuously varying chunk, I need to find a slice that's the right sort of size to say, oh, that's the kind of stuff I actually store, and that has the following properties, X, Y, Z. So... Um, so that's a purely uh, theory about perceptual analysis of online signals. And it has, you know, some interesting empirical support and some interesting challenges, and we're just kind of, you know, beginning to sort out what's what's happening in that, in that research. The way it connects, in the end, to this predictive, to, the, to some of these aspects of internal forward models and coding is that now it would be really good to have a slide, because I have a big slide. <laughs> Obviously, this is summarized. It's a, um, we'll post it. We can post it, yeah, <laughs> uh, because we've, you know, we've written about this a little bit. Um, it's the the idea we're working with is that actually you are concurrently working in, in these forward and backward loops on multiple scales. Actually, as the um, well, let's start from, a, you know, from from the bottom. Something comes in, some part of the waveform comes in, you get a little bit of chunk of data, right? So a little slice of, a little slice of information. That gets passed up. up. Gets passed up the food chain and the afferent pathway. 
What you now do, I mean, like in any internal forward model or old hypothesize and test models, is you start generating guesses. And, you know, initially your guesses will be kind of lousy and kind of coarse guesses because you have just a little bit of data and maybe it's, you know, just a sample of 100, 100, 200 milliseconds. And so you do some kind of coarse coding initially on that and you say, ah, that stimulates for me the following guesses. So now comes the internal forward part of that, or the synthesis part of this kind of loop. You say, that's consistent with the following 10 things. Could be this, could be this, could be this, could be this. While you're doing that, but of course you're refining this because you now have the next sample that gets sent up that's going to narrow your choices. Uh, so as you go through in time, as you go sample by sample in time, your hypothesis space that started out huge and coarse Think of it like the sort of jaws of an alligator. You start with the mouth really wide open. Many hypotheses are entertained. And as you entertain two or three samples, you go, you know, the jaws close and you get smaller and smaller guesses. And then, boom, in the end, you have your target that you've synthesized. So, um, and it, this has to happen on some cycle. So, for instance, in visual object recognition, where we've actually um, borrowed or been stimulated by a lot of the thinking of um, uh, Hochstein and Ahisar, Mirav Ahisar and Shaul Hochstein have some nice papers on what they call reverse hierarchy theory. It's the same idea. You have a little sample, in this case, you know, you have for them maybe a little slice of time or a little slice of space. It gets, it allows you to generate high level hypotheses, in that case it's in the visual system, not in the auditory system, that passes down in a reverse hierarchy, so not passing up, but passing top down plausible completions of that, which you then refine against the input, and that's the that's then the comparison of the predicted and the actual input where you generate the error signal and the, sort of the other part of that circuit. So it's uh, very plausible. And so the timescales come in because they, they, you have to do this at some, on some scale. So how, this is a discussion that I was having with Todd this morning. But how far ahead do you look, and how do you actually align your guesses in terms of if there really are different temporal granularities of experience, and I think there clearly are, how can these possibly align? This is a difficult it's a problem conceptually for engineering, for neurobiology. How do we actually align stuff? So that it's, our, our perception is unified. We all agree on that. And yet it's clear from, an archi you know, from a sort of implementational point of view it's extremely fractionated. I mean, in some sense, it's the same problem that uh, people in vision have talked a lot about as a binding problem. And what, this is the temporal binding problem. How do you bind distributed units that carry distributed information into something that's a coherent, unified object of a word? And then how do you do it over longer streams, for instance? So I think there's a very rich area for investigation. And what I like about the internal forward model or analysis by synthesis scheme is exactly what you mentioned, Charlie, which is it really provides a way of talking about things that could link to biological investigation. I mean, there's really a game in town. It's you know less and less kind of. I mean, it's still speculative, but it's less. But it's beginning to specify things at a level where you can say, "Look, if you show me this circuit, that would actually answer a specific question. If you can figure out in you know in a brain subcortically, cortically, how this circuit works, that would give us a specific answer of how that's done. I mean, that's that's way cool." I mean, that's pretty impressive if we could do that, right? And I think if you have to, you know, I think in 50 years we can. I bet, I mean, if I had to put my money on it, and I guess I do, because I have to write grants. Spend money. <laughs> if, I, if I have to put somebody's money on it, I'd be willing to say that, let's say, 
in 20 to 50 years, if we're intelligent about exploiting what we know about sort of the but human speech recognition and the brain basis of it, that we can do sort of neuromorphic engineering designs for automatic speech recognition that will far outstrip what we're currently doing, which is frankly abysmal. And so given the amount of money that's... What you're doing. Yeah, what I'm doing. <laughs> that's, no, but, I mean, take, take the funding that's done, that's put in by IBM, right, products like, well, I won't name the product. I won't name the product via voice. The <laughs> products by IBM, by um, by Microsoft, by Google, they have put, you know, and we're talking about real money here, right? This is not the kind of money that we're used to as college professors. This is real money. And they've put in, and they hire intelligent people, but they're all doing the same thing. And the systems, as you know, are pretty embarrassing, right? So you can go to your cash machine, and it's trained on a closed set vocabulary, and it can recognize, you know, 20 versus 40. But any one-year-old can recognize any one of us immediately with no trial, right? So it's obviously you know, clear that we're doing something distinctly different, and we're using you know, the information in a more interesting, clever, fast uh, way. So... If we can begin to harness that, I'm sure there are going to be very good engineering applications. And I would say in the next 20 to 50 years, I'm pretty confident. Because, I mean, neuromorphic engineering of that flavor is going to just take this and put it onto VLSI, and, and we're going to, you know, it's going to be pretty fast. So, so in in having this top-down feedback, so one mm-hmm. of the things that you mentioned in your um, from your work is that you can the, the auditory system parses information at different levels. So you're getting sub, sub, sub-segmental information processed in that, but you're also segmenting at pretty big units of syllables, syllable structure. Mm-hmm. So that's an incredible top-down feedback system. Mm-hmm. And how is that actually affecting the lower... I mean, how, how is it neurologically actually getting down to the system um, to be able to in, influence processing at the lower levels? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Good, hard question. Please stop. Oh. <laughs> um, so how, and you're asking how, how to, we're currently actually debating this a bit, so, um, and ironically, I've been reading papers about it this very week. For instance, uh, David Gao from Mass General is doing some very interesting experiments and has done for many years experiments on, for instance, uh, word recognition, spoken word recognition, trying to tease apart the contribution of top-down effects, lexical effects on parsing subsig- you know, very low-level segmental features. So is, the, is a guess about what the word is changing my analysis of the periphery, right? That's always what's at stake. And, uh, and, and the answer is yes, if we believe that research, and we should. Uh, although that's actually a, a controversy in its own right. So there are colleagues uh, who shall remain nameless from Europe who, have a, who hold a much more strong and actually plausibly motivated uh, strict bottom-up perspective on this. And they, have, they have actually good evidence for this. So the issue is, what is the locus of this? So once you have a little bit of data that you've collected in the auditory system, what is the? how can you get to a state where you start generating guesses? And then how and, and where is that done? And then how do you feed that information back to the periphery such that it constrains how you analyze the input? And if I knew that, I would also be very rich and famous. <laughs> <laughs> like that's a cool, that's a cool and super hard question. We're having a. I just challenged David on uh, our blog to answer my question about this, <laughs> which is uh, he has a some interesting arguments that there's an interaction between the super marginal gyrus and earlier areas. 
that regulate the top-down influence of this, but there, I think there are alternative hypotheses that should be considered. This is an extremely fun and vibrant current area of investigation. I mean, how do you actually do it? I, you know, everybody has their own guesses about this. The thing that's worth, or that I, I have to sort of remind myself of all the time is, of course, that this intricate balance of feed-forward processing and considering the predictions of an internal forward model isn't just at one level of representation. I mean, that is, it happens at the level of, let's say, the interface from lexical to sublexical properties, but also at the grammatical level. I mean, you have a very rich, so as a speaker of a language, any language, you have knowledge of language that gives you very precise information about what you can expect. So let's say, to take the, the children's example, if I say in English, the, you know, what can come next? Well, a noun. That's a good guess, right? So you have a very strong prediction of noun. So the caterpillar. Very good. What else can come next? Could be an adjective. The hungry caterpillar. What else can come next? It could be an adverb. The very hungry caterpillar. What else could be nothing? So already, when you encounter the determiner, the, you know there's only three flavors. It can be chocolate, vanilla, or strawberry. So already you have an extremely useful, strong constraint that's predictive about what could be the next step. So current theories of incremental parsing very much build on that as well. They say So this notion of an internal forward model isn't just at the level of speech recognition. It's going to hold at the level of parsing as well. And so I think it's worth remembering that this, oh, this information has to go all the way up, if you will, and all the way back down. That adds a layer of complexity. How do you coordinate that then? Because that happens on much longer time scales. So my colleagues, Steve Greenberg and Oded Gitza, and I have been working a little bit on this notion of having um, cascaded oscillations at even more distinct time scales. I think it gets biologically a little dodgy, but I think the conceptual structure of the problem is pretty neat. And it suggests that there's you know, sort of layering at multiple. Are they hierarchical? Are they coupled oscillators? What's, and we don't know. And this is just a pre-theoretic intuition of how to pursue the problem. But if you go back to that, it seems like the one... These, these language and auditory tasks are kind of at added level of complexity because that problem you just described is very much like an object recognition uh, visual problem where you have lots of context and things that you're looking for and that has to go down and feed your guesses of what comes in uh, and constrain what's happening and you have lots of complicated knowledge about the world and what you expect. But that's all framed in a static thing. It just has to happen. And you, the way it's framed, you could be looking at that. Uh, you know, it would take forever to, to do that object. Because uh, it's not a stream in time. It's not a stream in time. So you have to have those. So when you have to have the neurobiological construct of what you think a representation is, then you have to have those interacting. And then it's you could think of them as interacting in, in, in space and so forth, but you have an, a much more stringent uh, coordination problem when those are actually happening in, in Yeah, I think time. if you were a fighter pilot, you'd have a completely different view of uh, visual object recognition. Very similar thing happens when things start moving very quickly around you that you also have to uh, parse them up in, in time and you have to deal with it as a, as a temporal stream. So, you know, I think that object recognition is often kind of slow right. moving, but there, but we're still, we can still do it even when it starts to become mm. incredibly fast. And often when things start to happen fast, then they become really serious and we want to do them well and we have a lot of stake. So, um, 
it's um, it isn't. You know what's really different. You know what I think is really different is the fact that language. Maybe I'm wrong. You can correct me if I'm wrong, but my understanding is that language is always broken up into little chunks. That language is uh, that like words and syllables and phonemes and things are uh, are sort of fundamental parts of language. Even bird songs and and crickets chirping and all of that stuff that breaks things up into natural, well-defined, relatively well-defined mm-hmm. boundaries between units that isn't part of our regular stream of experience in every other, in, in every other way. Is that, is that a huge clue about language? Does it tell us something? But language is not parsed naturally. You have to have that top-down information to be able to parse it, just like you have to have the top-down information to parse it. That's a separate chair and a separate table. It's certainly true in the bird songs that you can see in the spectrogram, the boundaries between syllables. It's not true in humans? It's there's there's less clarity in the in the distinction between syllables. I mean, there's some overlap, there's co-articulation that changes from one syllable to the next. But I mean, if if you're listening to a language that you don't know, it's much harder to parse the information. We don't naturally parse it into the word boundaries. Um, there, are, I mean, our brains are very good at parsing that information. Like there's all this evidence that we rely on statistical information of when things appear together and and to help us create those boundaries, but um, See, if you're right about the theta thing, I would think that word boundaries wouldn't not only have to be universal, but words had to be on average of a certain length, or at least uh, phonemes would have to be on average of a certain length. They are. And so, phonemes and syllables are, not words. Words, words, words are multi-constituent things. But th- that's the issue. Right? So this is what I... So when you measure syllable length across languages, it is a, it's a, it's a remarkably small distribution which is, well, this is all the more interesting because, you know, different languages come with vastly different syllables. So, for instance, if you speak a syllable time language like French or something more raic like Japanese, extremely regular. Consonant vowel, C, V, C, V, C, V, C, V. It's very regular. But if you're Serbo-Croatian, you can have a consonant, 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 vowel. <laughs> and yet, when you actually do the, the analysis in Chinese, the distribution is surprisingly narrow. And it peaks at around you know sort of five hertz if you look at the modulation spectrum. So there are well-defined units. And but look, what comes this is a what comes first is it the the it's and I'm going to say it's the brain that comes first. So I think we graft the output system onto pre-existing neuronal structure. Presumably, the state of business follows from the biophysics of how cells are wired up, and not because we speak a certain way. And so I think. The production system is just grafted onto our what we have available to us, and that's why we could profitably study it in animal preps and so on. I think no reason to, to not go in that direction, for instance. But the um, yeah, there are natural bounds, and I think the statistics of speech cross linguistically suggest that there are very clear uh, there's there's clear structure in the signal that we, that we presumably exploit as an organism. We would be crazy not to. I mean, we'd be stupid. But it's not really a universal aspect of all other sensory experience that it comes in. Well, isn't it? I mean, if you look at the statistics, the statistics of natural images, so people like, you know, my colleague at NYU, Aero Simoncelli, and actually people like um, Frederick Tennyson have done lots of work on the statistical structure of natural signals that suggests there is tremendous regularity in it. There's, a whole so bit, well, there's also a controversy of whether any of this active perception actually you actively segment the world 
when you look around in the same vision, you move your eyes. It's a little bit slower, but not that much slower. If you're actually looking something that you see first, that you cod very, very, uh, very quickly in the same in the same frequency range and active touch and other kinds of things. And so then you may say that our brain is wired for the things that we control more than we just sit around and say the sensory world comes in. So that, I mean, that's this is a whole line of argument of whether that's all the same. And then you start talking about frequencies and and whether you get sloppy <laughs> and how how big is the same. And then if, if you start to cover too big a range, then it, then you're not talking about too much. But people argue that 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 all the senses are pretty similar, and that maybe have to be related to the time it takes, just neural time it takes to take something in and processing and do the next action. Because mm-hmm. you want to you do want to chunk and you want to guide your next action with something reasonable. And so is it that time or is it the fact that you can only move your hand so fast or your jaw so fast? Mm. I mean, there's a remarkable alignment, right? So jaw, the natural, uh, you know, this is the business of what's the, what's the natural oscillation frequency of the jaw. It's the same. It's about, you know, for, so it's also in the theory. So this, this is hardly accidental. I mean, so it must be that's the, that's just the biophysics of a group of cells of that flavor wired up. I and mean, what, what else would it be? It would be a, Remarkable accident if it just followed from a bunch of things. So, is, but is, is any other modality as as lateralized as is speech production lateralized, or is it so just language? Act, this is a very good question. Is it, so, the way well, the canonical model, mine, or at least what Greg Hickok and I have been <laughs> saying, the, or we call it the right view, the um, the, as opposed to the left, as opposed to the um, <laughs> is that. There's um, the systems are a bit dissociated. The why is it that we see such compelling lateralization, for instance, in clinical cases? It's because of the way we probe it. We probe it with production tasks, and it turns out that the production system, or what in our model is uh, really mediated by the dorsal pathway, this is sort of projections over the parietal uh, to temporal uh, to frontal cortex, that seems to be very lateralized. And because we probe things that way, we we tend to see lateralization of function. Uh, interestingly, when you probe perceptual tasks, it's a much more bilateral distribution. So the way the boxologies we've developed over the years are looking is that the uh, on balance, comp- the, the architecture, the, the parts of the brain mediating comprehension for the most part are very much bilateral, but the parts mediating production are pretty lateralized, and that actually captures the clinical picture quite well. Um, so, And that seems to be pretty unique to the language system, I guess. But of course, there are other strong lateralizations in the visual system, say. And the visual system has compelling functional lateralization. In hemispheric industries, there's lots of elegant work, for instance, by Rich Ivory and Lynn Robertson, and a lot of people on, let's say, the analysis of spatial frequency. So spatial frequency in an image is not treated the same way. If you flash just, you know, I don't know, really boring sine wave gratings to different parts of the visual periphery, you get um, quite clear, robust, and easy, easy to replicate in you know, a lab exercise a functional lateralization. So there, it's not clear what the computational generalization is, but there seems to be you know, the vibe, and that you know, it's sort of like 70s pop psychology. Right? The, there's, the vibe is somehow that larger units broadly construed are what's what's being tackled, whether the broader units are defined by a spatial frequency, so configural information, or by tempo frequency. In this case, let's say we can conceive of the notion of syllable as a larger unit relative to you know its internal structure. 
And there's something about, I don't know what it is, right? This is, a, again, this is a very sort of pre-theoretical way of talking about things. But there is something about this functional lateralization about having to do with the evaluation of larger perceptual units. That, so Coslin talks about this in terms of the coordinate system of things. We talk about it in terms of the temporal nature of things, envision it as to do with spatial frequency. But there are some underlying generalizations which would be good to be to make more explicit and computationally clear and uh, there's, I think, at this point, little controversy that they're there. <laughs> so, I mean, this, there is a game in town. <laughs> there's something to investigate. There's, you know, dissertations to be written. And even in the in the comprehension system, you're saying it's yeah. more bilateral. The, it is it's bilateral. It's distributed, but the role that the left and right play is is seems to have some primitives. That may that may be related to other. So the right seems to be more gestured. Sorry, more um, sort of global picture processor, and the, the left is more in tune to the details, um, it, where it seems to carry over to other domains as well. Yeah, I think you're quite right about that. Yeah, I mean, I think that's, that's um, yeah, and I should make uh, that more clear. So even though we're claiming and pretty strongly at this point, you know, defending the view that uh, that there's a bilateral structure to language comprehension. It's not to claim that they're identical, as they're definitely uh, contributing different kinds of things to the overall task. And we don't know in detail. So there's a lot of research in neuropsychological research on, for instance, in the language case, on what's called coarse coding and semantics, for instance. And so lexical processing is not exactly the same thing. Uh, in the, uh, so even though both areas, for instance, of the middle temporal gyrus uh, contribute uh, compellingly to accessing words in your head, they're not seeming to do it the same way. The time course of activation is different. You associate a whole bunch of different candidates with it. It seems like the so whatever the right hemisphere is doing in that case, it's doing a similar operation, but not the identical operation. It's adding different important information to the task. You're, so you're exactly right about that. It's, it's, and it might be related to other aspects of, yeah, maybe the analysis of visual scenes. I mean, we're, again, we don't really know. We don't have a good hypothesis for the underlying computational um, operations that are going on. But you're, but you're exactly right about the point. Well, I think we're we run really long. This is great. Thank you so much, David Popel. Thank and, you. Uh, this has been Neuroscientist Talk Shop. <laughs>